This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from the state capitol in Tallahassee, where the state's new vaccine policy can be summed up in five words. Use it or lose it. Uh, Hospitals that do not do a good job of getting the vaccine out will have their allocations transferred to hospitals that are doing a good job in getting the vaccine out. We do not want vaccine to just be idle uh, at some hospital system. Ron DeSantis made that announcement during a visit to Orlando Health, where he said vaccination sites will be working seven days a week during the new year to inoculate as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. Now as we enter the new year, uh, I think there's uh, a lot of reason for optimism. I think you're going to see that at hospitals throughout uh, the state. Uh, They have all the staff back, everyone's ready, and we're going to really hopefully see a lot of shots going. More than 260,000 Floridians have already received their first shot. Seniors still have priority, but some hospitals have stopped taking appointments for vaccinations because the supply is not keeping up with the demand. The vaccines haven't put a dent in the daily casualty reports. They're actually getting worse. The state reporting 105 additional fatalities Monday and more than 11,000 new cases of COVID. On Sunrise In-Depth, you'll hear about a federal court challenge to one of the governor's favorite laws, a bill punishing local governments that don't cooperate with federal immigration authorities. The law being challenged is Senate Bill 168, commonly known as the Sanctuary Cities Law. SB 168 has done exactly what it intended to do, create a climate of fear. A climate of fear in which immigrants and those perceived to be immigrants are fearful to perform even routine daily activities. We have immigration laws, just like we have laws governing healthcare, air travel, and food safety. Believing that the law should be enforced is not evidence of discrimination. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and the story of a Florida man commonly known as the masturbating bandit. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, January 5th. On this day in 1914, industrialist Henry Ford announced he would double his employees' wages to five bucks a day. It's not that he was a big fan of the working class. His goal was to simply make sure that everyone who worked at his company could afford to buy one of his cars. January 5th is also National Bird Day, National Screenwriters Day, and National Whipped Cream Day. Another day of triple-digit fatalities in Florida. The state health department reporting 105 additional deaths and more than 11,000 newly confirmed cases of COVID-19 Monday. There have now been at least 22,415 fatalities in Florida, including 878 over the past week alone. We have not seen numbers this high since the summer surge. The total number of COVID cases is more than 1,376,000, which means one out of every 16 people in Florida have now been infected. As the demand for the COVID vaccine grows and supplies run short, the governor is pressuring hospitals to speed up the process. Ron DeSantis traveled to Orlando Monday where he said hospitals that do not vaccinate enough people will have their allocations reduced. We're here today uh, to announce the kickoff of Orlando's Health's community vaccination sites. Uh, In addition to right here at the South Seminole Hospital, Orlando Health will be operating community vaccination sites at six other locations. Orlando Health, Dr. Phillips, Orlando Health, Winnie Palmer, Orlando Health, the Central Hospital, Orlando Health, South Lake, Orlando Health, St. Cloud, and then Bayfront Health in St. Petersburg. And I was talking with with David and some of the physicians. Uh, They've already just at this site, uh, just this site, right, have done 
1,500 shots today, and they think that they can get to, what, 4,000 um, shots uh, uh, for the day. So that's really going to start. I mean, I think they're going to be in a great groove. Uh, we have given them an allotment. They think they're going to blow through that, and um, we're going to give them more. Of course, uh, supply is uh, still limited, uh, so we ask you that you bear with us, uh, both the health systems um, as well as other folks who are doing it. Uh, they're working really hard. This is a big priority for them. Uh, they do a great job, and they're going to be administering vaccines as quickly as can. Uh, the hospital-led vaccination efforts uh, will be critical to the rapid dispensation of vaccines throughout the state. And in fact, up to this point, about 80% of the vaccine doses have been distributed to hospitals around the state. And some are, um, are doing really well with that, and we want to thank them for what they'll do. Um, and what we've done is we've asked all the hospitals who are getting vaccine to submit to us how they plan to offer vaccinations to the community, especially, of course, our senior citizens. And I want to be very clear on one important point. Uh, hospitals that do not do a good job of getting the vaccine out will have their allocations transferred to hospitals that are doing a good job in getting the vaccine out. We do not want vaccine to just be idle uh, at some hospital system. So as David and everyone here at Orlando Health, if they're exceeding their targets, which they very well may be based on what they're doing today, uh, and there's other hospitals that are, are not moving the vaccine, then we're going to up their allotment and we're going to reduce the allotment of any hospital systems that, are, systems that aren't getting the shots in the arms. The governor also announced the state-run testing sites will be converted into vaccination centers that will be open seven days a week. We don't believe it's time to rest. So any state site, if we do a drive-through site, if we do a pod somewhere in a community, uh, I've ordered that anything the state of Florida is doing uh, is open seven days a week. So if you have a drive-through site you know, down in Miami, uh, we want that open seven days a week. And I've also asked the hospitals uh, to consider expanding their services to seven days a week. Uh, I just think it's going to be easier for people. Uh, it'll be more opportunity for people to be able uh, to get in and get vaccinated. And we really view particularly, you know, these, these next two months as really crunch time. So anything the state's doing, it's going to be seven days a week. DeSantis is also promising the state will hire 1,000 extra nurses to administer shots and use churches as vaccination centers in underserved communities. Now as we enter the new year, uh, I think there's uh, a lot of reason for optimism. I mean, I've talked about some of the statistics that you hear what's going on today. I think you're going to see that at hospitals throughout uh, the state. Uh, they have all the staff back, everyone's ready, and we're going to really hopefully see a lot of shots going. So I think that we want to continue to see this vaccine administered uh, as quickly as possible. We're going to continue to get more and more supplies. But just in a couple weeks' time, you went from only being able to send it to a small amount of hospitals to now having it available across the state with hospitals. And then, as I mentioned, we're going to be doing some stuff with the test sites. I'm also going to have a number of announcements this week about other, other innovative ways to get this uh, into the community. So uh, 2020. Not the best year that, that I think any of us uh, have had. It was really, really tough for, for a lot of people. Uh, no matter whether you ever had any encounter with COVID, it was still tough for people. And uh, I think 2021 is going to be uh, going to be brighter. And I think this vaccine is providing a lot of hope to a lot of people. 
One of the most frequent complaints you hear from Floridians about the vaccination program is that you don't have to be a Florida resident. That means Sunbirds, 65 and older, will be getting shots before millions of Floridians are even eligible. But the governor says he's fine with that. So basically the way we've told people is, look, we're a transient state. You'll have people that be here. I mean, it's not like they're just vacationing for two weeks. You'll have people who are here four or five months a year. They have relationships with doctors. They get medical care in Florida. They obviously are involved. So that's a little bit different than somebody that's just doing tourism and trying to come here. So we, we are discouraging people to come to Florida just to get a vaccine. But if you have folks who spend four or five months a year in the state of Florida, um, I don't think we want to get in a situation where we're trying to say, oh, no, no, you, know, you go back to Rhode Island or you go back to Minnesota or, or wherever. So if they're here, if they have a residence and they're, and they're not just uh, kind of flying by night for a week or two, uh, I, I'm totally fine with that. Um, obviously, we want everyone to get access to it. But it just becomes an issue that I think that may have been a pod that was set up there. So if we set up a pod at a senior community, you know, we're really letting those residents sign up. But like when we were in Delray Beach, all those people are actually residents of that community. I didn't we didn't check to see whether they're there 12 months a year, 10 months a year, six months a year. But they're all residents of the community. If they get sick over over the winter, guess what? They're going to come to a hospital in Florida. So I think if we're trying to mitigate um, uh, the disease and the clinical consequences, I think the people who are here that are over 65, and again, that's much different than someone just showing up and saying, give me a shot, and then they're going to fly back somewhere. We, we obviously are not going to do that. Uh, but for seasonal residents who are going to be here, uh, I think, it, I think it's, it's totally fine if they want to do it. Yes, sir. So, yes for snowbirds, but no for teachers. The governor says instructors and school staff should not expect to be prioritized for vaccination against COVID-19, at least not for now. Almost six years after same-sex marriages became legal in Florida, a state representative files a bill to remove a ban on those marriages from Florida law. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled back in June of 2015 that same-sex couples have a fundamental right to marry, but the old ban is still on the books in Florida. Representative Michelle Rayner, a Democrat from St. Pete, has filed a bill for the upcoming session to repeal the old law that defines marriage as a legal union between one man and one woman. Farmers and forest landowners in four Panhandle counties can now begin applying for additional Hurricane Sally assistance through the USDA Farm Service Agency. Enrollment for the Emergency Conservation Program and the Emergency Forest Restoration Program began Monday. It runs for two months. Those with farmland and private forest land damaged by natural disasters in Escambia, Santa Rosa, Okaloosa, and Walton counties can apply. After decades of battling between Florida and Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court next month will once again take up a dispute about water in a river system that links the two states. The high court has scheduled oral arguments next month in a case about sharing water in the Appalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint River system, which stretches from North Georgia to Appalachicola Bay in Franklin County. Florida claims Georgia is taking too much water from the system, damaging the Appalachicola River and destroying the oyster industry in Appalachicola Bay. Next up on Sunrise, the battle over sanctuary cities in the Sunshine State moves to a federal court in South Florida. But first, a word from the sponsors. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. If you live along the I-4 corridor, learn to use your business experience to impact public policy. Apply by January 8th to the Central Florida Political Leadership Institute at cflpli.org. 
The Orlando Economic Partnership offers this free, nonpartisan program for business-minded leaders to explore whether elected or appointed office is right for them, discover political strategies to succeed and lead, and join a network of influencers. Apply by January 8th at cflpli.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. One of the governor's top priorities during his first legislative session was passage of the Sanctuary Cities Bill, forcing local governments and law enforcement agencies to do everything they can to help the feds enforce immigration law. A coalition of immigrant rights organizations challenged that law in federal court after it took effect in July of 2019, and the trial finally began Monday in front of Judge Beth Bloom in the Southern District of Florida. Paul Chavez with the Southern Poverty Law Center represents the group's challenging Senate Bill 168, who say it's motivated by hatred of immigrants and leads to racial profiling of black and brown people in Florida. SB 168 has in fact resulted in an increase in racial profiling, arbitrary police stops, and discriminatory arrests. The very purpose of SB 168 is to discriminate, that it promotes profiling based on race, national origin, and color. And by citizens, Your Honor, not just any citizens, I'm talking primarily about black and brown citizens. The data presented will prove that U.S. citizens are swept up in SB 168's discriminatory net on nothing more than their race or ethnicity. SB 168 has done exactly what it intended to do, create a climate of fear. A climate of fear in which immigrants and those perceived to be immigrants are fearful to perform even routine daily activities fearful of accessing critical health, social services in their communities, fearful of being profiled by law enforcement or other government officials, or even that their accents might reveal a national origin. Evidence will illustrate, Your Honor, that an immigrant threat narrative, and this will be a key part of the case, that there was an immigrant threat narrative advanced to support SB 168. Plaintiffs, and plaintiff's expert will present compelling evidence that this immigrant threat narrative was false. During the years leading up to SB 168, crime was actually falling in Florida. At the same time, undocumented immigration was going up across the state, and even more so in some sanctuary jurisdictions. In fact, we'll see evidence proving that the alleged sanctuary jurisdictions are likely safer than other jurisdictions. We'll learn of the involvement of anti-immigrant groups who intimately became involved in the drafting strategy and promotion of 168. We'll see that Floridians for Immigration Enforcement, FLIMIN, will be a major player in this drama, offer their regular input, opinions, and suggestions on 168's language and even proposed amendments. Fleming even did as much as providing data to SB 168 sponsors. We'll hear evidence from both plaintiffs and plaintiffs expert that these groups are indeed anti-immigrant hate groups. During a joint press conference with sponsors of SB 168, Fleming and other xenophobic organizations repeatedly used the term illegal alien, a term with racist undertones. We'll see the characterization of undocumented immigrants as murderers, as victimizers, all during the same press conference. We'll hear key people in this drama, Your Honor, describe human beings as busloads of illegal aliens. 
and we'll hear about Latinx people, particularly people, people of Mexican descent, described as wetbacks. In sum, Your Honor, by the end of the week, plaintiffs will have demonstrated that SB 168 is a law motivated by anti-immigrant hate, and it should be struck down. The state's opening argument was, shall we say, interesting. While the law was supported by anti-immigration groups and people who use what is often described as hate speech to attack people from other countries, Assistant Attorney General James Percival argued that that doesn't mean the law itself is racist or that the lawmakers who supported it were engaged in discrimination. When a person breaks the law, there are consequences. We have immigration laws, just like we have laws governing health care, air travel, and food safety. Believing that the law should be enforced is not evidence of discrimination. The evidence at trial will show that what occurred leading up to SB 168's enactment was a legitimate legislative process. Voices were heard on all sides of a policy debate regarding immigration enforcement. Plaintiffs participated in this policy debate, but despite plaintiffs' opposition, the legislature ultimately decided to enact SB 168. Now plaintiffs ask this court to take sides in this policy debate, and they do so by suggesting that merely believing that the immigration laws on the books should be enforced is discriminatory. But immigration laws are just as legitimate as other laws, and believing so is not bigotry. As the court listens to the evidence in plaintiff's facial challenge to SB 168, there are three points we think the court should focus on. First, <clears throat> the evidence will show that SB 168 advances the important state interests of law enforcement cooperation and public safety. And the evidence will show that these interests were not pretextual. When Sheriff Gualtieri testifies, this court will hear the real story on the ground. Law enforcement officials have a hard job. They face numerous challenges, and SB 168 resolved a number of real public safety and officer safety concerns that law enforcement officials like Sheriff Gualtieri had. Second, the evidence will not show that SB 168, which is facially neutral and non-discriminatory, has a discriminatory purpose and effect. And third, as the court hears the evidence, it should bear in mind the extremely high hurdle required to invalidate facially neutral legislation based on a facial equal protection challenge. Plaintiffs cannot clear this high hurdle. As the court will see, and, and as the court heard in, um, in the opening statement of the plaintiffs, most of the statements plaintiffs intend to rely on were not made by members of the Florida legislature at all. They were made by private citizens. And those that were made by the Florida legislature merely reflect a policy disagreement with unlawful immigration and a desire for the immigration system to proceed in a lawful manner. That is not evidence of discrimination. As to procedural and substantive departures from the norm, the evidence will show that SB 168's legislative process was a normal one. As with any legislative process, a variety of voices were heard. And some of those voices may have belonged to individuals with problematic views, as would be true of virtually any legislation. But plaintiffs will present no convincing evidence that the entire legislature endorsed discriminatory views in enacting SB 168. 
Like other legislatures around the country, the Florida legislature passed a law to facilitate safe and effective immigration cooperation. The trial over the sanctuary city law continues today, could last a week. Your calendar of events begins today at 9 at the 1st District Court of Appeal, where they will hear an appeal from former State Representative Kimberly Daniels of Jacksonville, who claims she should be shielded from a lawsuit filed by a one-time aide who claims she was fired after reporting Daniels for forcing her to run personal errands on state time. Attorneys for Daniels, who lost a re-election bid back in August during the primary, argue that she should be shielded from the law because of qualified immunity. The Orange County Legislative Delegation holds an online meeting at 9.30 as they prep for the 2021 session that begins in March. The Florida Public Service Commission takes up a series of issues, including a plan by Duke Energy Florida to add 10 solar plants in the coming years. Duke's proposal is dubbed the Clean Energy Connection Program. And the Florida Board of Podiatric Medicine meets online at 4.15. Finally today, a Florida man nicknamed the Masturbating Bandit has returned to the Sunshine State to face a series of felony sex charges. 25-year-old Anthony Sean Howard is now in the Marion County Jail. He's charged with two counts of burglary, lewd and lascivious exhibition, video voyeurism of a victim under 16 years old, and three counts of indecent exposure of sexual organs. Prosecutors say he won't be able to beat these charges. Detectives first learned of the guy in 2019 after a victim found Howard on her back porch masturbating at 2 a.m. When she asked him what he was doing, she says he shushed her and continued. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we continue to plumb the depths of Florida politics.